Welcome to the SCORE Life and Health Innovation Podcast, where we explore how innovation is driving change around the world in our life and health ecosystem. My name is Thorsten Hefer, and I'm your host for today. Our world is changing rapidly, and we want to come together with you to explore those changes and embrace transformation with SCORE. As one of the world's largest reinsurers, SCORE provides insurance companies with diverse and innovative solutions focused on the art and science of risk. Combining technical expertise and experience, SCORE leverages global know-how in over 80 countries focused on the life and health insurance industry. Good morning and welcome to the SCORE Life and Health Innovation Podcast. My name is Thorsten Hefer, head of SCORE's German Life and Health Market and Business Development Department. Today, my guest is Stefan Knoll, the co-founder and CEO of DFV, Deutsche Familienversicherung, which literally translates to German family insurance. That's a growing and successful insure tech active in various lines of business, from supplementary health and LTC insurance over liability and household insurance to pet insurance, one of their newest pets. Stefan, you are very welcome today. Could I ask you to say a few words about yourself? Hello, Thorsten. First of all, thank you very much for the invitation. You have told the audience already the most important things about my life. Yes, I'm an entrepreneur. Yes, I founded the Deutsche Familienversicherung, the first functioning insurtech in the European market. My background is uh, is the background of a lawyer, so I am well-educated, foolproof lawyer, by the way. I'm a reserve officer. Maybe this helps me in my daily business. Sometimes I write a book, and if you are interested in leading, you should read my book about Prussia's. So let's just start with our first question. We have a first focus on digitization. The insurance industry is undertaking, or maybe we should say undergoing, a profound digital transformation. What takeaways could you share with industry leaders on your own journey? It, it is not easy to answer this question because on the one hand, we are certainly one of the pioneers in the insurance industry with regard of digitalization. But on the other hand, due to the fact that we were only founded in 2007, we have a significantly lower IT complexity than our major competitors. Basically, a distinction must be made between product and process digitalization. I believe that far too often people start with process digitalization in order to make processes simpler, faster, and perhaps also more cost-effective. We learned and understood very early on the digitalization starts with the product and not with the processes. In addition, process digitalization is often not even noticed by the customer because he basically doesn't care whether his problem has been solved digitally or analog. This is not the case with the product, where only digital insurance products are also comprehensive insurance products. And this is not only in the interest of the customer, because he understands what is being offered to him, but also in the interest of the sales department, because it can work with less explanation. Well, that, I think it brings us directly to the next question. In your opinion, what areas of the value chain, so customer acquisition, underwriting, claims, etc., are most at risk, if that's the right word, at risk of digital transformation? 
Well, I can only answer this question for myself and our company. I think the biggest challenge in digitalization is always where we are dealing with expected customer behavior. Not all customers are used to the digital and not all customers want to communicate digitally. To expect too much here can cause a lot of trouble, even if others rejoice about the simplification because it is digital. But do you see a risk really in, in say, customer acquisition or claims processes from that? From my perspective, the main risk is to do too much digitalization <laughs> because ah, okay. every customer is ready for digitalization. Even me, I, I love printing paper uh, <laughs> and I hate it to work only on with my screen. So the risk is to change the whole company in a digital company and lose customers who are not willing to communicate on a digital basis with, ah, okay. uh, with, with, with you. Okay, I understand. understand. Interesting point of view, I think. Now let's let's take a, a small look on another aspect of digitization. We have a lot of capital raised for insurtechs at the moment. Insurtechs are booming, raising really massive amount of capital, incredible amounts we heard from last year, I think plus 90% the year before. Do you see this as a, as a long-term trend or more a one-off event fueled by the low yield environment? In order to be honest, I'm not sure whether insurtechs are really booming. Until now, money has essentially been burned, even though some of the so-called insurtechs are only in niches. But Vermilion is currently the only insurtech that works, was profitable until its IPO and will be profitable again in 22. At the same time, we present a product range You have mentioned it already, uh, that not only InsurTech in Germany and European market can match. And now to your question. A lot will be tried out and a lot of money will be burned. In the end, there will be little left over, apart from the fact that the so-called InsurTechs are also a stimulus for the established companies, which, equipped with completely different financial resources, can push ahead with digitalization slowly, but then really powerfully. Mm -hmm. So this will also be somehow burned into larger companies or part of it will be burned into larger companies in, in a sense. In our native language, we would say everybody is cooking with water. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure whether the difference between insurtechs and well-established companies is as big as some people think it is. And um, another question that often comes up in the same context, I mean, it, it, it fits to the question we had just now, is the question make, buy or partner. What do you think? How should insurtechs and insurance companies better operate together then? I founded my first company in 94. And from that time on, I often made the experience that it is much cheaper to use a partner than to build at that time complex call center environments uh, with your own money. However, this is offset by the desire of to integrate it. And in the case of such an integration, some compliance departments of large companies look forward to the new field of activity for applying labor inhibiting regulations. If a big company would buy Deutsche Familienversicherung, I would advise them to leave us alone and just tell us how much new business we have to deliver. At the same time, I would mirror or double 
all important functions in our company with employees of the big partner in order to transfer know-how from one company to the other. In any case, I would reject any idea of uniformity because it, in, in reality, it goes according to the old principle of the famous German Field Marshal Moltke, march separately, strike united. So my suggestion is buy a well-functioning insurtech company and learn from their approach. You can see over there. But do you think that's realistic in today's corporate structures and thinking? Well, it depends. Most of these insurtechs have a incredible value of billions of money and nobody is willing to pay it at the end. So that's the problem. So the alternative is from a financial point of view to do it by your own because, because uh, well, there are companies with a created value. It's not a real value, but the creative value of three to five billion. I would never pay such a fortune of money for these companies. At the end, my suggestion is to buy Deutsche Familienversicherung because <laughs> we are <not laughs> overvalued. The price is, uh, is presented by the stock market. So everything is really objective. Maybe from a pricing view, it is better to, to do it by yourself, but it costs a fortune at the end. So now let's come to a different focus, different topic. It's a big topic today in, in discussion and in the market, and that's ESG, environmental social governance. In, in your company, how do you set the balance between reaching financial targets and achieving ESG ambition? I've seen that you've, uh, I think, published your first uh, CSR report, the last annual report. How do you set that balance? This is a really complex question because for me, ESG is, sorry to say this, is part of a fashion. So I'm, maybe I'm not the right person to give you an answer. I don't see any contradiction between achieving financial targets such as profitability on the one hand and complying with ESG criteria on the other. Of course, this presupposes that those responsible for ESG in a company are not completely lulled by the mainstream. Kant's principle, the most important thinker of mankind, Kant's principle, have the courage to use your own mind, also applies to companies with ESG criteria. Based on this, from my opinion, um, armament factories in NATO are a good thing. Nuclear power plants are environmentally friendly and an ideal bridge technology. And the German nuclear uh, participation presupposes corresponding combat aircraft on the German side. In contrast, natural gas is presently a technology that is a disaster for our security. And step by step, the government and the executive realizes that, that it would be better to have made other decisions. So back to your question, from my perspective, there's no contradiction between financial targets and ESG criteria. As an industry, as a, as a whole industry, do you think there's something the insurance industry should be doing more collectively to address the climate part? For me, it's obvious that the concern for climate must be shared by all of us. And there's no doubt that we individual and small ways must contribute to uh, preservation of creation. The insurance industry is the most important branch 
for a modern and functioning economy. So there is an enormous, or there could be an enormous impact in behavior of citizens. For instance, we could no longer ensure buildings against fire, water, and storm that do not have modern terminal isolation. We could also stop insuring diesel cars and increase the price for travel insurance in order to reduce long-distance travel. Unfortunately, the most beautiful houses of classicism are not easily to be isolated. The diesel engine is probably the cleanest bridging technology in the field of mobility. And travel insurance to increase cost of long-distance travel is a measure that does not belong to us. So what does this mean for a solution approach? Yes, we all have uh, to do something, but it is the duty of politicians who set concrete targets and shift not fundamental issues of national and international scope to the private sector as they like to do. So in order to give a clear answer, it's not the duty of the insurance branch to do collectively anything. It is the duty of every person, of every company, of every enterprise to avoid anything doing against environment. Yeah, so it's, it's more an individual company issue, an important issue, but not something that we should address collectively as an industry. Exactly. Politicians yeah. have to <laughs> have to say very clearly what we have to achieve as a society and so on, and not transform ideas on a private sector. Now, uh, an interesting question. Again, on, on sustainability, but also on re remuneration, executive pay. So as sustainability is increasingly embedded into the governance framework. Should the industry link sustainability performance with senior executive remuneration? Or is that something where you say, well, it, it comes by itself? As in principle, key business corporate objectives should always be linked to executive pay, especially top executives. However, I warn against uh, making fashion-based ideas the subject of variable pay. In this respect, I can do nothing with terms of sustainability in general. And I, I have no idea how to, how to link sustainability with a bonus system in a company. No idea, by the way. But it's modern, yes. Are there other important ESG aspects that you see in insurance business besides the asset side? So I think we very often talk about sustainable investments, climate-friendly investments, and so on. The yeah, social yeah. part? ESG is more than assets or the interest out of assets. So there are enough fields of action that are affected by ESG that have no impact on asset allocation or the return of interest. And I think that we, the insurance industry, with proven resistance to crisis and the financial reserves that large industry uh, insurance companies in particular have, are well advised to keep an eye on the social aspect of what we do. And maybe it sounds too soft, but I do think that we have to do everything we can to ensure that our employees have good working conditions and enjoy their work. Yeah, and I noticed in your own CSR report, you have, I think there were five main targets and three of them relate to honest and fair dealings, to being a responsible employer, to social solidarity or social spirit. So 
that's also a statement in your annual report. We cannot help the whole world, but we can do in our responsibility a lot. And we are responsible for the employees who work for us. And this is my primary target to have a look on my people. Coming to your people, as you say, your company now, some more general questions for the end of our podcast today. What inspired you to start with pet insurance and how would you describe the difference compared to health insurance you did in the past or you're still doing? First of all, our view on pets has changed dramatically over the last years. For instance, the husbandry conditions for farm animals it was not in the scope of anybody for the last, say, 30, 40 years. But nowadays, everybody thinks about how we deal with farm animals. And I would like to quote a statement by former German president Johannes Rau, who said about his dog, a disaster as a dog, but irreplaceable as a human being. And I think <laughs> this says what pets are today. Pets are members of the family. As a member of the family, they receive a medical treatment that is equal to any other human family member. And due to this, we have to answer who pays the bill at the end, because there is no public health insurance for pets. And this was the motivation for us to start with pet insurance. It is always the same. Is there a necessity or a wish on the side of customers to pay money for events or for risks that are not covered by any public institution? Then it is the right time to start with a insurance solution that covers this risk. That's all. Yeah, I think it's very understandable and good motivation to do it. Proven a big success so far. So coming to the really more general questions now in the end. When or in which period in your life did the idea of founding your own insurance company come up? I mean, it's not an obvious thing to do, I think. Sometimes people will speak about their own CV in a way that the audience thinks that everything was planned over the last 50 years. So I have not planned my life, but when I started my career, it was in 88 at Allianz, and I was at that time assistant of the chairman of the board, I realized we prepared the 100 years celebration of founding Allianz. It was in 1990. Allianz was founded in 1890. I realized that Allianz was founded by two people, Mr. Fink and Mr. Thiemer. And from that time, it was obvious for me that I will found an insurance company because first I learned what an insurance company is about. Second, I realized an insurance company is a really complex thing. And everybody told me that it's impossible to found an insurance company. Unfortunately, we had not enough money. And from a financial perspective, we had the possibility to found an insurance company in 2006 when we sold the last shares of our second company. And then we were able to realize this dream. And again, everybody said it's impossible, but we asked for permission in November 2006, and we got the permission in December 2006, and the 1st of January 2007, 
we were a very proud shareholder of a new insurance company with any content at that time. <laughs> so it was only an insurance company on the paper. So the idea came up in 89 and we realized in 2006. Yeah, so, so you really kept that motivation and goal for <laughs> over 15 years. Yes, but I was forced to found other companies in order to earn enough money for founding insurance company. And by the way, Deutsche Familienversicherung would never have been founded in 2006 without private money. We invested until the IPO 38 million euro in order to finance this company. Nobody would have given us one single penny in 2006 for the idea of founding an insurance company. So this was the first time for many, I think for decades, that private persons founded an insurance company with private money without any external investor. Yeah, I think today it would be much easier to get that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. Maybe that's the reason why we expect profitability this year. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And none of the other companies. I mean, yes, you were really ahead of the pack with that idea of founding an insurtech by several years, I think. Okay, so we are at the end of our interview and of our innovation podcast for today. So, Stefan, thanks a lot. It was very interesting to discuss with you again. Thank you very much for your interest and see you next time when I can tell you more important views about Deutsche Familienversicherung, again, the only functioning insurtech in the European market. That's a nice statement for the end. Thanks a lot. Thank you.